News Network. A sitting president admits his actions are unconstitutional, but says while it's being litigated, we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. This is the man sworn to uphold and defend the Constitution. It's time for some pushback, and that starts with the truth. TNN, the Truth News Network, spells it out. And with today's Chalk Talk, Dan Newman. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Tuesday on TNN Live. I hope your week started off good. We're going to make it a little bit better. We're going to do that today, and we have so many things to talk about. We're going to break down the president's budget proposal, and it's not a budget proposal. It'll probably shock you that it's all about giveaway spending. It's all about raising taxes, and of course, it's a benign thing. We're only going to raise taxes on the filthy rich Americans. So less than one-tenth of one-tenth of one percent of people in America are going to be taxed, and we're going to take so much from them that everything's going to be okay. I know I'm exaggerating, but it's almost that crazy, folks. But let me tell you what we're going to do first. We're going to make a phone call and let you join in with us on this phone call. I told you this was this was going to happen. Um we're going to speak to Alex Bryant. This is Alex. Alex, you're on the air live. How are you, buddy? I'm doing great. How are you today, Dan? I'm fine. We're going to try to keep the uh, bouncing, pinging back and forth in your earpiece down to a minimum. I, I haven't told the people exactly about who you are, and I want you to just tell us what the heck is going on in your life. And first of all, let me give everybody a little bit of background on you you're an ex-football player and yep. actually that's how we connected you played football at evangel university for head coach keith bearfield yes sir and keith bearfield and i have been friends for many many years actually um i was involved with evangel when he played football there wow. so it's making you sound really old yeah it kind of does you're about 50 right I just turned 50 a month ago. Well, happy birthday. Thank you. So you have been around the world in all kinds of circumstances. You've been very successful in business. I mean, you were a sales whiz when you worked at MCI WorldCom. And uh, you've, you've, you've taken that experience in a lot of different directions. And, of course, you, were, you, you came from Florida. You went to Illinois. You went to Missouri. And you're in Missouri now, living in Nixa, Missouri. Yes, sir. You are about to embark on, um, I don't know if it's going to be a nightmare or a, uh, <laughs> a really good experience, but you're running for Congress in Missouri. That's it. That's what they say. And, and you know, I appreciate you saying that, Dan, because I don't think most people are being honest with me when I say I'm running for Congress. They're always like, congratulations. And I'm like, shouldn't someone... It's maybe a little bit of a nightmare, so we're I gotta, gonna do it. I got to be honest with you, Alex. Um, I couldn't do it. <laughs> uh, oh, it is so filthy and dirty up there, and I have good friends in Congress. Steve Scalise, uh, Mike oh. Johnson from the 4th Congressional District here in Louisiana, and others. Yeah. Great people are up there, and if you yeah. get elected, and I hope you will, uh, we're going to talk in just a minute about what you're going to bring to us if you get elected. I want you to integrate with all those people and get as much Jesus in your life as you possibly can, because you're going to yeah. get you're going to get all kind of nastiness thrown at you. 
you've got a great That's family. You got a great family. Tell tell us about your family. Yeah, I am. I'm a blessed man. I am the husband of one woman. Her name is Angela Bryant. We've been married for 26 years, and I've known her since grade school. Wow. So, yeah, my mom and her mom actually worked together at a nursing home. And, um, I was a part, we're from the same small town in Illinois. We lived on one side of the town, went to the black church in town. She lived on the other side of town and went to the white church in town. And so finally, when I was an eighth grader, her mom invited my mom and our family to come to church. And we did. And the rest is history. She saw me one time and said, I have to be with that man. <laughs> that's that's my story anyway, and I'm sticking to it. There you go. That's 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 an amazing thing. I'm sure you didn't care anything about her when you saw her. Right? <laughs> hey, you know, I I saw her and I saw the way she loved the Lord, and I was like, man, that is a godly woman. And even in even in high school, when I wasn't thinking about marriage, I was like, I want to be with a lady like that one day. And so that's what I thought. Well, you're a blessed man, and uh, congratulations on that. And being married that long these days, buddy, that's a miracle. Yeah, it's hard work, but you know, you work, you work at it. And I tell people all the time, marriage is about finding the person that you love enough to work through all the junk. And um, and but we've been blessed. You know, 26 years, five kids. We have four boys, and kept going until we had our little princess, and she's the last one, and so. Our kids range from 21 down to our little girl that's 12 years old. Wow. Well, I, I know I know. with all of that, everything else is just great in your life. You don't have any challenges, right? <laughs> that's, that's what they say, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> well, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Um, you, you come from Florida. You met your wife yep. in Illinois. She's a Midwesterner. You're a Southerner you've got to have this racial thing hanging over your head. She's white. You're African-American. How have you guys reconciled it? Uh, you coming from your background as far as politically and socially and her being a Midwesterner, all of that meshed together. Obviously you've been doing this for 26 years. How did yeah. y'all work through all of that? You know, that's a, that's a great question. And it's been some flashpoints in our life. Like, um, I gave you the story that when I saw Ange and I saw how godly she was, I thought, man, I would like a girl just like that, but I wanted to be black. And it's unfortunate that we have to think that way in our culture and our society, uh, or we don't have to, but we've been conditioned to. And it goes back to the way we were raised. I was raised in Fort Pierce, Florida, very segregated town. Still to this day, you have the black side of town and you have the white side. And, um, you know, my mom was young when she had me. My dad was, my real dad was young as well. He wasn't on the scene much. So my aunt and my grandmother pretty much raised me. Well, my mom was being as young as she was. She was just doing her thing. And a guy came down for spring break. She ended up moving back to Illinois with her, with him. And I didn't see her for a couple of years until she came back and brought me up there with them to, Illinois. And in Illinois, things were much different. It was a little bit more of an integrated town. There was segregation. It wasn't, they were, it was desegregation there. I mean, excuse me. And people just saw each other for who they were. It was a college town. So that's where I was raised at. 
for the time I was in grade school, junior high, and high school. And so what there is where we learned that people are people, and no matter what color they are, no matter you know what ethnicity, you learn to like and love people for who they were. So I'm thankful for that upbringing in Macomb, Illinois. You know, again, there was there was issues. There was some things. There always are, but for the most part, my friends and the people that I interacted with didn't really care about what color you were. So, especially in Macomb Assembly God Church, we went there. There was a pastor there in town that was a new pastor at the time, and he was just drawing people of all color, all races. And so we just um, learned to love people and see people who we are. And, and that's how Angie and I have tried to be even now and as we do our ministry and, and, and just love on people. Let me ask you this about what you're looking to tackle um, using a football term, but um, how do you propose you get elected for Missouri and uh, you go to D.C.? In which district in Missouri are you running for? Missouri 7th District. It's southwest Missouri. So it'd be like Springfield, Joplin, and then all the way south to Arkansas, and then all the way um, west to Oklahoma. Got you. So, so for the 7th District, the people there that you'll represent, you go to D.C. How are you going to pierce this horror that we all face every day? It doesn't matter where you live. doesn't matter where you came from. In the United States of America, race and racial differences has been weaponized politically. Yeah. How you how can you pierce that for the people you'll represent in the seventh district? Yeah, you know um, that's a great question, and it's the Lord has really been preparing us for this moment. I mean, it's really a, an extra moment, such a time as this. So I'm going to go back a little bit on that, Dan. Back in 2013, 14, 15, I ran the St. Louis Dream Center in St. Louis, and so during that time, if you remember. We had the Ferguson incident, yeah. Mike Brown, hands up, don't shoot. Yeah. yeah. And I was running the Dream Center. It's about four and a half miles from the Ferguson incident. I was the pastor of the church there. We had about 600 people. And a, and then every day, a thousand people came to the Dream Center for some need. And these are predominantly black people. Sure. You know, and so we were there. Ferguson happens. They asked the clergy to come and help keep the peace between the people and the and the police, and so I was doing that for those 11 days of tension, and crisis, right, you know, whatever we want to call it, you know, riots, and so then um, that's when I saw firsthand just the, the tension. I, I wasn't aware of that because, you know, at the time, my wife and I were just doing the best we could to be me and her and raise our kids. We had these biracial kids, and we weren't raising them to see color like we would say most of the time, but so then that issue happens, and um, it opened my eyes. It opened my eyes to the fact that the media, have, they played a part in trying to stir us up with racial tension and um, just keep us at odds. You saw the, the start of Black Lives Matter, the organization there. That, that's the organization that really weaponizes race like no other. And then we also saw how politicians were jumping on to be a part of that and to try to use that incident um, to grab power and keep power. And so I've seen that. And, um, so then you fast forward a couple years after Ferguson, There's um, it's 2016, 
four or five police officers were shot in Dallas. And um, in response, it was, they were shot by a black man who said he was frustrated that police were killing unarmed black people. So my wife and I made a video along with our kids, and it was, um, it was called um, Let's Start Again. And, and you can look this up on Facebook. It has 50 million views. Wow. And it says um, the, the whole goal of that, the message was that this isn't a black versus white thing. It's not us versus the police. But this is dark versus light. And we truly believe that the devil is trying to use the sin of racism to stir us up, to distract us, to divide us from spreading the gospel of Jesus. Because when we're at odds with other people or if we think someone's a racist, we don't want to share the gospel with them. So that's been our message over the last three, four years that we've been traveling around. We, we talk about racial reconciliation from a biblical perspective. But as we've been trying to do this, we've seen how it always comes back to the political issues, the politics. Um, people are frustrated. People are mad. They're, they're looking at the policies that's going on. And, and then they're looking at the people bringing these policies and, and they call them a racist. And so, and now we're at each other's throats. And so, so we've noticed that we can't even talk about theological issues like um, abortion or the sanctity of marriage, you know, or the advancement of the LGBTQ agenda, because as soon as you try to talk about the issues, one side claims, well, Trump is a racist. And so um, we're having a hard time discussing these issues that affect us, these, these theological issues that have been relegated to the political arena. And so, man, the Lord's just been impressing upon my heart and our heart to to help lead people, to influence culture, to see that there's an agenda to use race, just as you said, to weaponize race so that we don't talk about some of these issues that our country is faced with that's really destroying the moral fabric of America. So I want to kind of help lead and bring some civility to this um, conversation, to create dialogue, to help create policies and um, that, that help shield our conservative values into, um, into block the attacks that are coming. Just because you have a conservative values or you want to take care of the borders or you know, to seal our borders or to make sure that we don't teach kids critical race theory, that doesn't make you a racist. And so, um, in a black man, I think I can stand up and say, I believe these conservative values and I'm not a racist. And so that's why I want to take the fight to Washington. I want to take it to Washington and stand up for our values and to speak out for our conservative values and views. You know, when I, when I talk to a, a, a person like yourself, you're a seasoned veteran of life. You've been on both sides of the spectrum. You've been very successful in business, very successful in the church world, and you've got a great family. You're an oxymoron like three, four, five, or six times over. Uh, you're not You're not supposed to be able to do that. I mean, you're an African-American yeah. guy from the South. You're supposed to struggle. Um, right. You've, you've, yeah. you've put that to the side somehow, some way, and I know, I'm not even going to ask you, it's through your relationship with God, You've been able to marshal all of those outside sources and keep them from determining who you are. You have found who you are. That's why I connected with you. When uh, when Keith Bearfield, my former football head coach when I was in the Arena Football League, and told me about him, Alex, who's on the phone with us now, 
when Keith talked to me the way that he talked to me about you, something yeah. sparked. And then you and I got on the phone and I just sensed it immediately. You've got yeah. the goods. There's no question about it. You've got the goods. I want to say this then, you know, you, we, we don't know what to do with race, ethnicity in our country. It, it makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. Um, we, we talk about this in a book. We wrote a book called Let's Start Again. And it, it's, it's about dealing with the shades of gray. We, it makes us a little bit uncomfortable on both sides. So we just want to say nice things like, you know, we don't see race or, it, it, you know, we don't, we rise above that, which I understand the sentiment of that. It's like race doesn't matter. We do see color. What color is your car? So we need to figure out what to do with race. And so here's what I say. Being a black man, I'm, I'm a big, bald black man. That describes me. If I was to walk into a room and, and you would look up, you'd say, oh, there's a big, bald. You should probably add beautiful in there. But you'd say, there's a big, bald, beautiful black man. And although that describes me, it doesn't define me. And that's what we have to look at. My, you know, I am defined by what Christ says I am. Jesus says I'm a child of the king. I'm a Christian man who happens to be black. And so that's where we have to get to. It's okay noticing race, but we can't allow that to define who people are. Let me, let me give you a quick example of what you're talking about. I, I was in the Arena Football League as an owner for 10, 11, 12 years. Every uh, season when we opened up, when training camp opened up, I never got involved in the X's and O's. I let the coaches do that. But they all wanted me to come meet the team the opening day. And from the very first season when that happened till the last season that I did it, here's what I would do. They would introduce me to the players and the players, oh my gosh, there's the owner. You know, the only only good thing about an owner is somebody can write checks, but they uh-huh. think they think you're something special. And so we only had 35 guys that came to training camp, 35. So I would introduce myself and just tell them, hey, I'm Dan Newman. I want to learn about you. And so I'd have them each stand and tell me who they were. Alex, it was crazy. You know what they would say. Hey, I'm from so-and-so, and and I played football at this university from this high school, and I'm a wide receiver. And they would go on down the line. And at the end of it, every year, it was almost none of those 35 would actually answer and tell me who they were. They were telling me what they did. Yeah. That's the problem yeah. that many of us have. We get caught up in what yeah. we're doing and how that impacts us rather than who we are and how we impact our environments. You, you've you got that. You've got that. You and your wife figured that out a long time ago. And I think that's why you and I have clicked. Let me segue away from that to what is facing you. Two things. I want to know, before we finish this conversation, I want to know specifically what your plans are. How do you see yourself making an impact in D.C.? And how long is it going to take if you get elected? I mean, those are only two-year terms. Are you going to be able to make an impact, do you feel? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, um, I have, it comes down to this. I am a conservative. I've always been a conservative. Right. I've always been less about Republican or Democrat. I have family members on both sides. 
And although those things are important, I first and foremost would say that I am a conservative. Now, because of the issues, um, the things like protecting the unborn, um, protecting the sanctity of marriage, those issues are important to me as a pastor. I'm a pastor. I've been a synagogue minister for about 16 years. So that's why I usually align with the Republican Party. As a matter of fact, I've always voted Republican. I mean, that's just where it is at. Um, you know, however, I don't want to demonize Democrats. I don't like saying they're the left or this or that because I feel like I'm insulting my family and just creating more strife. Sure. You know, I, I say to people, regardless of whether you're Republican or Democrat, if you are a Christian, you should make sure that your party's platform aligns with what the Bible says. So that's first and foremost. I want to bring some civility back to politics. I want to be able to connect with Christian people, moral people, and talk about the issues and, and not get distracted about um, race or weaponizing race or what, what separates us. You know, so that's first and foremost. Um, now, I do believe that um, as a conservative who is running as a um, Republican, and, and again, I have been a Republican forever. I just say that because I don't want to demonize the other side. But, but our country's being split, and um, we have separate views and separate values. And what I want to do is be an example to stand up and to speak for our values. I'm okay with people having different views or looking at things the way they want to. I'm not trying to force my opinion down their throat. I don't think people are bad people if they don't believe the, the way I do. But you can't force your values and your views on me as well. And I just see that there's this attack on our common sense, on our, um, our moral values, on, on just the thing that we know is right. They're trying to call wrong right, and they want us to smile and pretend like it's okay. And I'm not okay with that. Um, I want to protect women's sports. I mean, you know, you think about just the whole transgender agenda that's coming where, um, you know, we're saying that boys, biological boys, can compete with girls. And, and it's like if you give a little bit and then state, there's just a, a taking of a mile. And again, if people want to live that lifestyle, they should be able to do that. But don't try to force that on me and don't call me homophobic or bigot if I'm not, um, if I'm not what you would consider an ally, someone that would trumpet your views. Um, I want to defend our, our liberties. Um, you talk about like these mandates, the vaccine mandates. I'm okay with people getting vaccinated if that's what they choose to do. But I'm also okay with people not getting vaccinated if that's what they choose to do. And I don't think anyone should be forced to be vaccinated or lose their job if they don't. That's government overreach. I don't believe in that. You know, um, you know when we look at the, the issues happening down in our southern border, two million people have come here and crossed that border illegally this year in the last year. That, that's just ridiculous. I mean, you have to protect your border. That's the job of the government. And so I do believe that we need to protect our border, build a wall, and we need to reform our um, legal immigration system so that people that come here, um, when, if you come here illegally, we're going to send you back and we're going to have you wait and fill out the, the proper paperwork where you are and, and then give you a pathway to come here legally. And so these are things that the average people we talk about, we think about, yet we're called a racist or, you know, homophobic or xenophobic or, or intolerant if you have these conservative views. And, and um, you're labeled a racist. 
you can't label me a racist, you know what I mean? So, you know, I want to be able to speak up for our values. And I want to correct something. I, I said I, I said before, I'm going to take the fight to Washington. That's not it at all. I don't plan to go and fight with anyone. As a matter of fact, the Lord clearly told me, Alex, I'm sending you there to speak for our values. Not to fight with anyone. We've had too much fighting. I want to go and speak up and, and, um, and stand up. I won't be silent. And so um, that's what that's what I hope to do. Um, these terms are only two years. Um, I'm a believer in term limits, whether it's four, five, six terms. I don't care. But I think that you know, after eight, ten, twelve years, if you haven't accomplished what you wanted to do by then, it's somebody else's turn. So um, the founding fathers intended for us to go to Congress, to to work for a few years, to serve the people, and then to go back home. That's what I plan to do. I'm a pastor. I'm willing to go to Congress for a season, short years, 8, 10, 12 years, or whatever, and then I'm willing to go back home. And I, and I want to make sure that legislation is passed for term limits so that other people have their turn to go and serve the people and then go back home. I got to be honest with you. Uh, you sound, as far as politics, a little too good to be true. <laughs> it's common sense stuff that we talk about. Yeah. All of us are talking about this because we know that Washington is broken. Here's the biggest thing that frustrates me. I'm the average man, Dan. And, you know, I believe in working hard to provide to my family. I do that because, you know, without government assistance, the Bible says a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. And I don't even mind politicians going to Washington and doing that hard job and getting paid a great salary. But how come they all leave filthy rich? All these little backdoor deals they're cutting, you know, the stock stuff that they're doing. All these, There's this website I saw a year or so ago that's, that's a stock tracker where these young kids are getting rich by following what Nancy Pelosi um, invests in, and they invest in that as well. Yeah. They're, just, they're just jacking us, man, and, yeah. and, and we're taking advantage of us. And so we need, we need to change that. Well, I tell you what, Alex, we need to help you. So here's what I want to tell our audience to do. I know he may not live in, uh, you may not live in his district. He may not represent you directly, but we need this voice in Washington, D.C. He didn't ask me to say anything, but I'm going to say this. We need to help him. He needs to win this race he's facing in the 7th District in Missouri. How can you do that? Go to Alex Bryant with the T. A-L-E-X-B-R-Y-A-N-T for congress.com. Alex Bryant for congress.com. And you can click on the right side of the homepage after you read about him. He told us a little about him, but his background's even better. You can see his wife, gorgeous wife and him. You're uh, obviously an ex-football player, and I talked to your former yeah. coach. You're a, you're a big guy. I'm, uh-huh. I'm a ball guy with a beard. Um, I'm not African-American and I wear an earring in my left ear. So so we have some things in in common. I've got a gorgeous wife too. But anyway, go there and on the right side, you'll see a red banner that says donate. Help this man. Help the people of the 7th District of Missouri and help America get this mess out of D.C. and get back to common sense, fundamental moral principles, those that our forefathers believed in when they framed Mm -hmm. the Constitution. That's what we need. 
Alex, I want to thank you for connecting with us here. Thank you. Thanks for your time. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll say this one last thing. I'll say, Dan, um, the culture wars here. We moved our family a few years ago from Kansas City back here to Springfield area because this is a place where we knew there were going to be our conservative values and they're going to be welcome. You know, our kids didn't have to stay home this last two years during COVID. They were going to school and, and the last year they weren't even in masks. But I talked to so many of my friends and family members all over the country um, whose kids were never in school, whose kids are behind in the reading and math and um, the culture wars upon us. And, and this is a big deal for our country. I'm not all about identity politics, but the left are, they, they are. I mean, they, they're using everything with um, race to weaponize. If you're against anything in their agenda, it's because you're racist. So um, I want to join the two conservative Republican that are black in Congress right now to, to stand the line, to hold the line, the total line for all of us. You know, right now we have Byron Donalds from Florida and Burgess Owens from Utah. Those are the only two black conservatives in Congress. And I want to help them stand against the squad who's trying to pass their radical agenda for all of us. It will affect all of us. And so the culture wars here. I need your help doing it. I thank you for that, and I appreciate it, Dan. Alex, you've got our phone number. You use yes, it. Sir. You come back here anytime when you want to spread your word, the message, as uh, you get into this campaign. We'd like for you to give us updates, regular updates, and tell us how it's going. So we're going to back here. you. We're going to back you with the dollars. Of course, we're going to back you with our prayers, and we wish nothing but the best for you in this pursuit for helping make this nation what it was intended to be way back in the 1700s. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate the time. Thank you, everyone. Alex Bryant for Congress.com. There you go. Have a great day, brother. You too. God bless. Boy, it's nice to talk to somebody like that in politics, isn't it? You know, I'm sure you thought the same thing while you were listening to him that I thought. Oh, my gosh. How could this guy survive up there? (laughs) (laughs) He mentioned Nancy Pelosi. Oh my goodness. I can't imagine volunteering to go into that crazy life and expect to come out unscathed, but he's a football player. He's a lineman. He's a big guy. And I'm sure he's ready to take on that task. Hey, listen, thank you for joining us here at TNN Live. We have a special show today. We're going to talk about President Biden. We're going to talk about his budget for next year. And we're going to talk about the details in his budget. Probably, no, not probably, for sure, some of the things that you haven't been able to carve out yet that will make your hair curl. We've got that. We have Stuart Varney that's going to weigh in on one element of Joe Biden's budget, the billionaire tax. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And the president, he just ties himself in knots every time he opens his mouth. Don't go anywhere back after this at TNN Live. I'm Chad Hall, and I'm here with the first ever Silverado ZR2. This is probably the first time you've seen this truck, but I've been racing a prototype version for over a year. We just inspired this pre-production truck you see behind me. Let's go see what it'll do. 
Copy. It's got phenomenal power, acceleration, good ground clearance, skid protection, and you've got the Multimatic PSSV shocks, so it's just gonna be that much more of a fun truck. Copy. It's an amazing truck. You're going to want to get your hands on one. Nervous? Oh, Blaze. Brings back so many good memories. Remember our road trip in 97? Our first real heart to heart. I've never seen any of your movies. Not even the ones we're in together. Hey, do you remember when that stalker kidnapped us? Yes! Blaze was there. Blaze. Do you have barbecue? Or cheddar jalapeno? Ooh. Oh, remember when we stumbled into that turf war? <laughs> remember when you bought your first house? <laughs> Those were good times. They were golden. You ready? Seth, do you? I do. And Janet, do you? That's a yes. Yeah! I love this lady! <laughs> I know I should quit smoking, but it's just... <sighs> My feet and hands are numb a lot. Walking to the bathroom gets me winded. <coughs> I cough all the time. Seriously? I've been dying to quit. Don't wait till you're dying to call. When your health is worse, it will be too late. 1-866-QUIT-YES. The Illinois Department of Public Health and the American Lung Association in Illinois. QuitYes.org. You're fighting back the tsunami of ignorance with Dan Newman. TNN. The Truth News Network. You know, I look at what happens in Washington, D.C., and I'll watch what goes on there, just like you do, and we make our own conclusions based upon what we see. Now, of course, what they would prefer we did was not base our conclusions on what we see, but just on what they tell us. Yeah, that would be the right way to do it, you know? I mean, they can see and understand things far better than you or I just because they're them, and we're us. And, of course, they're more enlightened than are we. Right? I'm sure you agree with that. Well, I want to weigh into the president's new budget. You're going to enjoy the next 10 or 15 minutes of this because we're going to we're going to tear it apart and show you exactly what's in it. I don't know a better way than to start it by letting you hear President Biden tell us about his proposed budget that came out yesterday. So, take it away, Joe. Well, good afternoon, folks. It's been a busy couple of days for all of you. The previous administration, as you all know, ran up record budget deficits. In fact, the deficit went up every year under my predecessor. My administration is turning that around. Last year, we cut the deficit by more than $350 billion. This year, we're on track to cut the deficit by more than $1 trillion, $300 billion. $1,300,000,000,000,000. That would be the largest one-year reduction in the deficit in U.S. history. And here's how we're achieving it, this record deficit reduction. 
the best economic growth we've seen in this country in over 40 years. Because of the progress we've made dealing with these emergencies, the labor market is strong and unemployment, unemployment claims are at a historic lows because Americans are back to work. After my president's, my, excuse me, my predecessor's fiscal mismanagement, we were reducing the Trump deficits and returning our fiscal house to order. The Trump tax cuts added $2 trillion in deficit spending and largely helped the rich and the largest corporations. Under my plan, as I said, no one making less than $400,000 a year will pay additional single penny in taxes. No one. That's not right. That's not fair. That's not, that's not right. That's not fair. Well, that sure sounded good. And I, I bet you just, when you heard all that, you just got breathless because, oh my gosh, what a great job this man is doing for the nation. And he's going to pull us out of this uh, this abyss that Donald Trump put us in over his four years, right? Well, let's just look at some of the facts. The approximately $5.8 trillion, excuse me, trillion dollar budget is a little bit smaller than his $6 trillion budget request last year. But you'll be surprised to know that it doesn't include much of his social spending plans after record high spending during the COVID-19 pandemic. You heard what he said, quote, after my predecessor's fiscal mismanagement, we were reducing the Trump deficits and returning our fiscal house to order. Well, he got a little criticism because of uh, the facts. <laughs> the facts. The previous administration, as you all know, ran up record budget deficits. In fact, the deficit went up every year under my predecessor. What he didn't say was that the federal deficit was lower during each of Donald Trump's first three years in office. Lower than his. Now, what happened in Donald Trump's fourth year? in office, COVID-19. We had COVID stimulus. You know all about that. And that's why in his fourth year, the year right before Joe took office, there was a big budget deficit. That was before the pandemic, those three years. And it was $4 trillion in bipartisan emergency spending. He didn't mention that. Last year, we cut the deficit by more than $350 billion, he said. This year, we're on track to cut the deficit by more than $1.3 trillion. That would be the largest one-year reduction in deficit in U.S. history. Well, the federal budget deficit was about $2.8 trillion in fiscal 2021. When? What happened then in 2021? Joe Biden became president. Oh, yeah. Well, Democrats passed Biden's $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act. The previous year, the deficit topped $3 trillion as a result of relief spending during the first months of the COVID pandemic. This budget, Biden's $5.8 trillion budget, it's not going to pass Congress as it's proposed. And many of its ideas, like new proposed taxes on billionaires, could face opposition from centrist Democrats in the Senate split 
as well as the narrowly held Democrat House of Representatives. Well, that's part one of our analysis of his budget that he's putting out there. Let's just dig into it a little further. He was joined alongside newly sworn-in Director of the Office of Management and Budget Director Shalanda Young when he introduced this yesterday. With spending and tax increases, Biden's fiscal year 2023 budget is not based in any sort of fiscal reality. We live in a strange world. The president brags about a $1.4 trillion deficit. (laughs) That's a good thing, right? Increases in spending, which are going to happen, are going to add to our inflationary pressures, and the tax increases in his budget will weaken investment and destroy job growth. He didn't talk about this. In his budget is a wealth tax, a wealth tax, which would fundamentally change our relationship with the federal government. Wealth taxes are invasive, inefficient. Yeah, they're sources of revenue, but they don't work, and they attack people that make our economies go, period. So yesterday when I heard the president make this announcement, I just scratched my head. And it was like, why don't they just give us the facts? Just put the numbers out there and let us draw our own conclusions. So where is all this money, this big money going to come from to support all of the nasty spending in the bill? Stuart Varney, he weighed in. He's a Brit. He's got that great accent, but he's also got a great knowledge of economics. Listen to Stuart explain what this billionaire tax that Joe's saying is the panacea that'll fix everything. Stuart breaks down with the facts. I I really would like to label the billionaire tax for what it is. It's legalized theft. I have no doubt, however, that it will be popular. Billionaires don't get much sympathy, do they? After all, they don't need all that money now, do they? What the socialists are doing is simply seizing somebody else's money. If you're really rich, the IRS will add up all your gains from stocks, bonds, houses, even art, and then just take 20%. You don't have to sell the asset, but if you own it and it's gone up in value, the IRS takes a piece of it year after year. Here's what's going on. Until now, the government couldn't get its hands on much of the wealth created in the stock and real estate markets. The billionaire's tax changes that. The IRS would just take the wealth. I don't think it's going to happen. It's probably unconstitutional and will be challenged in court forever. But this shows how the Democrats are lining up their strategy for this year's elections. They're not doing well with the border, crime, and above all, on inflation. So they return to the old standby. Tax the rich. They're out of ideas that work, so they've returned to the failure of socialism. Makes them feel good, but it wrecks the country. So let's dive into exactly what that billionaire tax is. First of all, I'll just tell you this. Rich people don't pay taxes. Big corporations, they don't pay taxes. Well, what do you mean, Dan? How does the United States Treasury function? Where do we get our money from? It's not just from taxing we poor plebes out in America in the hitherland. They got to tax these corporations, right? Yes, they do. They pay trillions of dollars in taxes 
do these billionaire run and own corporations. So what is Stuart Varney talking about? He's not talking about taxing income on these billionaires. He's talking about taxing their wealth. And I'm saying the term wealth in quotation marks. Wealth. What is wealth? It's what you've accumulated. It's what it's valued at. Aha! Here's the conundrum. These billionaires, most of them got to be billionaires by being successful in business. Maybe they inherited some money or when they first got underway with their lives. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they came up with an idea, a widget, and found a way to put it out there and everybody on earth wanted it. Kind of like Apple, right? Got to have an iPhone. Kind of like Microsoft. Got to have a personal computer, right? Those kind of things happen. But on the most part, it comes when somebody gets an idea or a company and it starts worth nothing. And they, through hard work, smart work, working together with others, build a company, make it grow, and it becomes very, very valuable while it spins off income every year. The IRS already grabs the income. Joe's got to go one step further. He wants to tax the wealth. Now, how does this work? I'm going to dumb it down a little bit just to make it easy for me to understand. And if I can get it, I'm sure you can get it easier. It works this way. Every year, the IRS comes in and they value these companies or these assets, whatever they are. They may be a massive, part of a massive stock portfolio where some billionaire out there, he just plays a stock market and he's very successful. So he's got a portfolio that in, it, it, it contains all kinds of stocks. And they're doing really well. They're throwing off all kind of profit. So they're going to take the tax on the profit, the income, but they're going to assess the value of that asset, whether it's a company, a corporation that is providing maybe manufacturing widgets and selling them around the world. Okay. Or it's not. It's like I said, a stock portfolio that is not brick and mortar. They'll compare the valuation this year to the valuation of that asset a year ago. And whatever the difference is, it's grown in value tremendously. What are they going to do? They're going to tax that as well. If it's worth a million dollars more this year than it was last year, and it threw off a million dollars worth of profit in this year, you're going to pay tax on the profit. But you're also going to pay tax on the increase of the value of the asset. Very subjective process. When you get something assessed, a valuation on it, you go to a quote-unquote expert, somebody in that field that is best qualified to come up with a value, but it's always going to be very subjective. Here's the conundrum. There are two parts of this that just stink, maybe more than that, but two that just pop out for me. Okay, I made it very successful. Probably when I, in the beginning, was getting this company going, I, I struggled. I sacrificed. I didn't take an income check. I didn't take a paycheck. 
Sometimes I went into my savings to salvage this company to pay the bills. None of that matters to Joe or his ilk. None of those people get it. They don't understand. All they can see is what's right in front of their faces, and they think it's evil if they can't have a piece of it. Here's the conundrum. They're going to force people that have these assets, these successful companies, they're going to hit them with these massive tax bills. And a lot of corporations that make a lot of money, they don't have a lot of excess cash flow. You know what cash flow is. That's the money, the cash that you have to have in your operations so that you can pay all your employees, you can pay all your bills, your light bills, your rent, all those kinds of things, and you can pay your taxes. And you want to, and you got to, if you're going to be big enough to be figured into this billionaire tax thing, you've got to be throwing off income, cash flow, just to be able to make it. It's very doubtful that these people have tens of millions of dollars just sitting around in a bank account. They invest that money. Where do they invest it? Some of it probably is going to be invested in the stock market, but a huge chunk of it is going to go back into those companies. Expansions, upgrading equipment, hiring new people, growing markets, expanding in other locations. This thing that Joe Biden is calling a billionaire tax, if it is implemented in any form, it's going to slow down our economy. It's going to kill our employment simply because these people are going to have to borrow money to pay the tax bill on something that they haven't even realized the value out of yet. Their employees have. They got pay raises. The people that use their services have because they were able to add on, improve their products, improve their services, make them better, but they're not going to be able to do that anymore. They can't invest it there because they've got to send it to Joe in Washington, D.C. Let's just keep on going. What else is left? Well, Biden's budget includes a minimum 20% tax on the incomes of households worth $100 million or more. Doesn't mean they make $100 million or more. Worth $100 million or more. Corporate tax rates are going to be raised from 21% to 28%. Plans to reduce the deficit by $1 trillion over the next 10 years. How are they going to do that? It won't ever happen. We have never reduced our deficit ever, ever, ever. There's an 18% increase in the IRS budget. They need a lot of more money. They're hiring more people to come look at everything, every cent you make, and try to find ways to tell you you didn't pay enough in taxes. $813.3 billion in defense and national security aimed at countering threats from North Korea and Iran. An additional $682 million for Ukraine. That, of course, is to counter what Russia's doing over there. $81.7 billion to Department of Health and Human Services over the next five years. Why? Listen to this. This is earmarked to 
prepare for future pandemics. Now, a little bit later in the show, we're going to get into the future pandemics thing because we're going to refer back to and talk about and let you hear what Dr. Anthony Fauci had to say about future pandemics. Joe's going to ante up $81.7 billion for the future pandemics, $3.3 billion to support clean energy products, $18 billion for climate resilient resilience programs. It includes the backing for a civilian climate core. A civilian climate, come on, man. $309 million for border security, $494 million to help processing migrants. In other words, we're spending half a billion dollars to help processing migrants, only $300 million for border security. I can save half a billion dollars right now. Don't let illegals into the country. Boom. You got half a billion dollars left now. That includes $150 million for lawyers to represent migrants during immigration proceedings. Now get this. Somebody chooses come, coming here. They know they're coming illegally. They're coming illegally. They get into the country. They get arrested. They're going to have to go before an immigration judge. Joe wants you and I to pay for the lawyer. They knew they were going to need a lawyer and they were going to have to come up with one to represent them because they were going to get caught over here because that's what they want to do. If you get caught, you get put into the system. You get sent somewhere in the United States to live. They'll guarantee you income. They'll pay for your housing. They'll pay for your education. They'll pay for your health care. They and this whole thing is you and I. And so Joe is budgeting for lawyers to represent them at our expense when they go before a judge when they broke the law. You figured that one out. A billion dollars for school counselors after the COVID pandemic. Ten billion for election administration, including making ballots postage free. Now, I thought the Constitution is very clear federal government doesn't have anything to do with the elections. Elections are totally under the purview of each of the 50 individual states. That's constitutional. But Joe wants us to send the federal government $10 billion to give them more so that the federal government can have enough money to administrate the election systems in the nation. What do you call this? I call it pure socialism. It is nothing about a democratic society. It is nothing about the government representing the people and looking at this entire thing as they work for us, not us working for them. My analysis of Joe's budget from top to bottom, it stinks. And there's another S word that I wanted to say it would be labeled as, but I don't want to offend anybody. It's abysmal. We cannot even think about going into this with any of the stuff in this thing. We can't afford it. We've got to just stop this chaos. We got to kick it in the knees and get rid of it. Maybe if we get people, more people like Alex Bryant 
in Congress we can make this happen. We can't have this kind of spending by our government, period. Whether holding down the fort or bouncing back to school, childhood is always in session. So keep feeding us right with sun-made snacks, just like when you were a kid. Remember their naturally sweet raisins? Yup, still delicious. And so are Sunmate's other snacks, like creamy yogurt-covered raisins, sour raisin snacks that taste like sour candy with no added sugar, and Sunmate's new s'mores and birthday cake bites. All delicious, all made with whole fruit. Sunmade snacks. Holidays abroad. Can we, can't we? But then we thought, should we? Staycation! We could share a year. Please, no. Luckily, we've picked British Airways holidays. Small deposit and can change if we need to. Decision made. Moonlight skinny dipping. <laughs> we've booked St. Lucia. Two weeks. Did you? Why didn't we? Ah, clever you. British Airways holidays. At all protected. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. So you guys grew up together? Yeah, since third grade. What are you looking at? about the Supreme Court nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson. And um, I want to get into that in just a moment because it's a big deal. Obviously, um, she, if she is confirmed as the next justice on the Supreme Court, will be the first ever African-American woman to do that. But of course, there's a whole lot more to that. And that does not need to be the reason why anybody is confirmed to serve in any position anywhere. If that is the criteria, female, African-American, it's racist and sexist to make that the reason why you confirm somebody. So at the beginning of Ketanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings, the Democrats portrayed her as the nominee as an unimpeachable individual that she could withstand any line of questioning. By the end of the three days last week, the chairman of the committee was cutting off GOP Senator Ted Cruz of Texas so that she didn't have to answer questions about her lenient sentencing of child porn offenders. Folks, there's a whole lot to the background, and there's more and more that's coming out every day, even after the hearings are finished. In viral video from the final day of questioning last Wednesday, Dick Durbin, who is an Illinois Democrat, he's the chairman of that committee. 
He forced an end to Senator Ted Cruz questioning of Jackson regarding one case, a light sentence in which she called an egregious case, not even leaving the floor open to Jackson to answer Ted Cruz's question. Now, you heard Alex Bryant weigh in on his thoughts about what he might be able to do if he gets up there. What you're about to hear is an example of the crap that is going on every day. This is in the Senate Judiciary Committee, one of the most powerful committees in the upper house of the most powerful institution of American government, the United States Constitution, and our legislative branches. Here's Dick Durbin from Illinois, Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman, and Ted Cruz trying to get the nominee to answer a very important question. Prosecutor said 97 months. You said it's egregious. 6,700 images. You come in with 57 Time months. Time has expired. Why Senators did you send him into just 57 of- months in the Stewart case? Do you want to address that? Because you're claiming it's cherry-picking. In fact, you're welcome to explain any of these cases, but let's take the Stewart case. Why Coons, did you sentence him for half the amount? You're not recognized, Senator, Senator you, Coons. You don't want her to answer that question? You wouldn't allow her any. Mr. Chairman, she may answer the question. I've asked her why she sentenced Stewart. You've gone over the time, Senator, by two minutes. Why she? Because you've interrupted me for two minutes, Mr. Chairman. Will you allow her to answer the question, or do you not want the American people to hear (laughs) why, with someone she described as an egregious? There comes a point, Senator, where you get a little bit. Chairman Durbin, will you allow her to answer the question? You won't allow her to answer. I I will happily allow her to. The question is why you sentenced Stewart, an egregious child pornography possessor. to, to half of the amount Please, requested by the prosecutor. Please, Senator. Will you allow her to a- answer the question, Chairman Durbin? Senator Coons. Thanks. Why are you not allowing her to answer the question? There's You're not another the senator here that you've not allowed her to answer the question. I'm not asking another question, but allow her to answer the question, Chairman Durbin. Thank you, Chairman Durbin. Why do you not want the American people to know what happened in the Stewart case or any of these cases? Chairman Durbin, I've never seen the chairman refuse to allow a witness to answer a question. You can bang it as loud as you want. Well, I can just tell you, at some point, you have to follow the rules. Okay, will you let her answer the question? You've, you've been Senator, interrupting, we, and by the way, with Senator Graham, it went 10 minutes over. You've sure taken did. a big chunk of the time. Will you allow her to answer the question? You've given her Why no are you afraid of her? She's welcome to answer it right now. Will you let her? Senator Coons. Will you let, so no, you don't want her to answer the question? Senator Coons. Will you let her answer Thank- the question? Will you let her answer the question? Will you let her answer the question? And she never got to answer the question. That was just one example of what was happening. Durbin, he stopped a lot of the Q&A, and any time it looked like it was going to go the wrong way for President Biden's nominee, he would step in and interrupt. So the hearings are over. They were set to bring it to... um, the Senate to begin the voting process, but uh, it's been held up. After four days of all of this equally divided Judiciary Committee and the testimony and the Q&A, Chairman Dick Durbin, you just heard, he announced that the committee Republicans are placing a hold on the vote to confirm her nomination. Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa, he's the ranking Republican on the committee. 
He said, I join in the request to hold over the nomination for one week. He said, I'll have specific things to say about Judge Jackson at that meeting a week from today, but I want to just speak a little bit about the process. Democrats, now this is grassly speaking, Democrats have taken to repeatedly mentioning that Judge Jackson has been confirmed by the Senate three times, two of which were non-controversial, using votes for positions like the U.S. Sentencing Commission. She served on that. He warned against the Democrats' efforts to compare the two, saying it is going to make it much harder to confirm anyone to those positions. It encourages senators to apply the same standard use for evaluating Supreme Court nominations to every single position. Grassley also said Jackson's record is unfortunately incomplete. Now, what is that all about? Well, I'm going to blow you away with this. Did you know that the Biden White House, the Biden White House has withheld from the Senate Judiciary Committee, the media and everybody, 48,000 pages of documents, 48,000 pages of documents that have been held back by the Obama White House regarding Jackson. In other words, they have information on 48,000 pages of documents regarding this nominee's career as a judge that this Senate Judiciary Committee has no access to. Now, why would they do that? Why would they do that? Grassley is such a great, gracious guy. I mean, he is a gentleman. Here's how he explained his wanting to hold this uh, hearing and a vote for a little while longer. Quote, so with so much information withheld, we've examined a record. There were a lot of questions about Judge Jackson's judicial philosophy. He talked about a common line of questioning with vague answers that left a bunch of lawmakers from both sides of the aisle dissatisfied. Grassley said, I will speak more on Judge Jackson during next week's markup when we hopefully vote her out of the committee. The hold extends the committee vote on her confirmation till April the 4th. Republicans have just very little that they can do to slow it any further. Her confirmation can be brought to the floor by Durbin in the event of the vote in the committee. In the past, nominations like this have required a majority to advance, but under rules that were established by Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell at the beginning of the 117th Congress, Senate leadership agreed to allow tie votes to advance on the recommendation of a committee chairman. Her nomination is expected to breeze through the committee when it comes to a vote. I'm beginning to think not so much. There is more stuff that has come out. Just a little bit has come out. Jackson has been a board of trustees member at this school, this special high-dollar private school in Washington, D.C. She's been on the board of trustees there since 2019, and that school is the Georgetown Day School. While Jackson denied two crews that 
critical race theory is taught at that school, National Association of Independent Schools affiliated GDS, Georgetown Day School. The school demands, this was discovered after the fact, this is probably included in the 48,000 pages that the Obama White House, using executive privilege, stopped the committee from seeing. The school demands that every parent of every child sign a form called New Enrollment Contract Clause, which states the school has made a commitment to work actively against individual and systemic racism. Parents in this form acknowledge and understand that Georgetown Day School is an institution that values diversity, equity, not equality, equity, and inclusion, and that has made a commitment to work actively against individual and systemic racism, hatred, oppression, and bigotry of any kind. By signing this document, parents and students agree to join in the school's commitment and to engage in actions and efforts in furtherance of these values and commitments within the GDS community. So it doesn't stop there. Here's what the form does in addition to that. It gives the parents resources, resources, they say, to root out systematic racism and advance racial equity. Below, please find a number of resources to consider as you discuss race and actively work against racism with your children. The form states before providing specific links to the resources. Here are some of them they recommend. What is systemic racism? Glossary for understanding the dismantling structural racism slash promoting racial equity analysis. Racial stress and self-care for parents. Talking to kids about race. Talking to your kids about race and how to raise an anti-racist kid. How to talk to kids about race and racism. Talking race with your children. The content of every one of those books is full of critical race theory. This woman, the nominee for Joe Biden, serves on the board of trustees and is heavily involved in its operations. Interesting, huh? Do you think a person with that background is qualified to serve as a United States Supreme Court justice? I really don't think so. That's just my personal opinion. It is what it is. Regarding President Biden, his approval ratings are just, I I just have never seen them for any other president just drop through the floor like they are with his. 71% of Americans believe he's headed in the wrong direction. Just 22% say the country is going in the right direction. People who say our nation is headed down the wrong track under this president has grown. In April, folks, 56% said the nation was headed down the wrong way. That's a 15% point gap since April. 36% say the nation was headed in the right direction, a 14-point difference from this latest poll. I'm not even going to go into the other details. It's just, uh, let's just say this. 
71% of us believe we're going down the wrong road with Joe Biden. It's amazing, but that's what we get. He said Monday, Joe did, about Ketanji Brown Jackson's confirmation hearings. He said he didn't watch any of it. That's what he said live on Monday. But that comes in the face of the White House previously saying he watched portions of it. This is a quote from Biden Monday. Quote, I didn't get a chance to see any of it. He's speaking to a bunch of reporters. Well, White House spokesman Chris Mager said on March 22nd, the second day of the confirmation hearings, Biden had watched portions of the proceedings and he was impressed by her ability to strike down conspiracy theories about her background that Republicans keep bringing up. And he said this on Monday. This is one of the most qualified nominees ever nominated for the Supreme Court in every respect in terms of her disposition, her intellectual capacity, her experience and background serving on three additional courts. Totally, thoroughly qualified. And once again, these things just keep coming up. Biden says, I didn't say that, and he said it. Or he'll say, here's what I said, and he didn't say it. But in this case, folks, it's an obvious cover-up. You heard just a part of Durbin doing what he was doing. He did not want her to answer that question about that sentencing. And folks, just so you know, in every case in her career that she adjudicated on, every defendant that came before her that was either by her decree as judge or by a jury, Every one of them that had to do with pornography, especially child pornography, in every case when it came time to sentence that defendant, she just blew away the minimum sentences that were recommended in the federal statute. That's what judges are supposed to go by when they sentence a person for committing a crime. In every one of them, she drastically reduced the sentences. And in that one case, what Cruz was trying to get her to talk about was the fact that when she she cut that man's sentence by 81% from the recommended sentence that called for it in the statute, she apologized to him in open court for even sentencing him to that much time in jail you got to get to the heart of that. I mean, that's something. We're talking about the highest court in the land she wants to be a part of. Joe Biden has already nominated her to sit there in Judge Breyer's seat on the court. And she doesn't believe in honoring the rule of law, the constitutional thing that put all the power for doing legislative, creating laws, every part of laws, not in the Supreme Court's hands, not in the lower court's hands, solely in the United States Congress. And she just blew through it in her career. That's not a big deal that needs to be out there that all Americans know about. It is to me. It is to me. I think we all need to know these things. And especially the people in the Senate that are going to be the ones to determine whether or not this nominee serves 
on the Supreme Court or not. I think it's a valuable asset to get as much information, but when you quash conversations in these hearings that are all about Q&A, you're not getting the facts. You're not getting a perspective. You're not getting the answers that you need to determine, is this person qualified to serve on this court? And all I can say, folks, in my history, every time I've seen this process play out like Durbin was using it, it is to hide something, to keep it hidden so that the people don't know. The people that are looking in or listening in don't know about it, and therefore they can't use it to make a decision on whether this person actually is qualified. So busy you don't have time for today's news on TV or newspaper? Never fear. TNN has your answer. Download TNN Podcast to your phone. Catch up with the latest news during your busy day. The Truth News Network. TNN. Truthnewsnet.org. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Papa John is not interested in quality. He's obsessed with it. Because Papa John's a pizza maker. It's what he does. That's why you've got Papa's Quality Guarantee, signed by the man himself. Love your pizza, or we'll deliver another absolutely free. It's my guarantee. Better ingredients, better pizza, Papa John's. And right now, save 25% when you spend 25 pounds or more online. Don't forget about this. Anytime you miss part of any show, TNN Live show, every day, Monday through Friday, 9 to 11 a.m., if you can't be with us during that two-hour period, you can always look back. You can go to your favorite place to get your podcast. We're in pretty much all of them. Spotify podcast, Apple podcast, iHeartRadio podcast, Google podcast, Stitcher podcast, TuneIn podcast. And you also get our shows at Facebook on my Facebook page. So you can grab any one of them anytime. You can download them. You can just listen to them when it's convenient for you. But we don't want you to miss any of them, so we make it easy. And I want to tell you our show is growing. People around the country and around the world are finding out TNN Live is real, is paying a price to bring facts to the American people. And we're going to continue to do it as long as we can. Thank you for being a part of this. You know, I, I, I stayed away from any conversation about the Oscars yesterday. Um, probably don't need to tell you this, but the ratings for the Oscars this year were the lowest in American history, lowest ever. People are just getting numb to the fact that these elites on the West Coast primarily, they really think they are something intrinsic in American life that we can't do without. We're finding out, especially during the pandemic, we can we can do without that. We don't have to have that. Still, I got to be honest with you. I, I love movies. I've always loved movies. I like to throw myself into a good movie 
and just take me away from the world for an hour and a half. I like that. But I'm picky about the stars that I like to watch. Has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with anything other than their acting abilities, in my opinion. And your opinion about that may be different from mine, and that's okay. I just have certain actors that I really like. I'm not going to go into who they are, but I do. Nevertheless, back at the Oscars, we had an incident that happened, and actually, i got to be honest with you, I think it was staged. Chris Rock was the host, and Will Smith is sitting out there with his wife, and I don't know if it was planned, I think it was, but it didn't look, at first glance, it didn't look like it was prepared. He said something, Chris Rock said something, about Will Smith's wife, who is afflicted with um, a addiction. It's not an addiction, it's a, it's a case, a medical condition in which you lose your hair. Propecia, I think, is the name of it. So Jada Pinkett Smith, a very attractive young lady, a good actress on her own, Will Smith's wife, Chris Rock said something about it, and Will Smith got up and walked up on the stage and slapped, I mean, really hit Chris Rock hard on the side of the face, just turned around and walked back and sat down. I think it was something to make news about the Oscars. I really do. They're they're fading away from the real consciousness of the United States and the world. It used to be a really great thing to watch because you saw people you liked, you heard them be positive about things in the United States and the world, but now even the people that get up there and talk, they make it all political. Nobody wants to hear that from an actor. We want to hear things about what they do that we enjoy. Well, yesterday, CNN Plus, which is CNN's streaming service, a host on CNN Plus, Jamil Hill, she was on CNN's The Lead yesterday, and she said that black women were encouraged by actor Will Smith slapping comedian Chris Rock at the Oscars. Why? Because Smith was protecting his wife after they just saw Biden's Supreme Court Justice nominee, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, lambasted in the public eye during her confirmation hearings. Jake Tapper was on the show. Of course, he's the host. He said, Congresswoman Presley, who I believe also suffers from alopecia, she immediately posted and then she deleted something that said, thank you, Will Smith. Shout out to the husbands who defend their wives living with alopecia in the face of daily ignorance and insults. She deleted the tweet very quickly, talked about the importance of nonviolence, and she doesn't advocate violence, which is what Will Smith did. Again, nobody is saying it was okay to slap Chris Chris Rock in the face. Nobody's saying that. But obviously, for Congresswoman Presley, she spent years being mocked and derided, and she felt for Jada Pinkett Smith. Jamil Hill then said this, Not only that, Jake, you have to actually understand this on an even deeper level. For black women, we watched confirmation hearings with Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, right? We saw everything that she went through, saw how she was really lambasted in the public eye. We saw all the things she had to deal with. 
and we saw she was often lauded for keeping cool and collected. Sometimes when things happen, people don't feel that way. For black women in particular, I saw Tiffany Haddish as well, where she felt very encouraged, if you will, by the fact Will Smith, in this very public setting, was standing up for his black wife. That's a protection black women often aren't afforded. Like you said, it was obviously wrong. Chris Rock shouldn't have told the joke. Will Smith's response the response can't be to go up and slap another man in public at the Oscars. The thing that struck me in Jamil Hill, who is a African-American black activist, she was fired from ESPN for racism and racist comments. The sentence that stood out to me is she said, Chris Rock slapping Will Smith in the face. That's a protection black women often aren't afforded. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this. I'm not African-American. I'm not a woman. Why and who is not protecting black women? Who would that be? I think this has a lot to do with what Alex Bryant, the congressional candidate that started the show with us today, what he was referencing. Those on the left have to find a way to weaponize everything that happens in everyday life. Got to make it political. Got to make it racist. Got to weaponize it against who? Whoever their political opponent is at the time. It could be another Democrat. But most often it's a conservative. Most often a Republican. In this case, Jamil Hill is drawing the line, not between black and white, but she's being divided in the black community. The inference that she makes when saying what Chris Rock did, what Will Smith did after Chris Rock demeaned his wife, Will Smith's wife, she's saying that that is a protection black women often aren't afforded. Seems to me that that would be something that is specific to the black community and that black men aren't defending their black wives as Will Smith did. That's all I want to say about that. I just wanted to mention it and give you my opinion coming out of that debacle that happened. I don't think it helped the Oscars at all. In fact, I think it hurt them. I really do. There's there's something else that popped up yesterday that just caught my attention. It blew my mind. And it has to do with the 2020 election. Here we go. Dan's back on the conspiracy theory thing. No. Listen to this. A CIA officer, a real deal, folks, a real guy, has confessed that the deep state rigged the 2020 election. He's not even saying just that. He says the election was rigged in Joe Biden's favor and has boldly admitted that the agency is going to do it again. Who is this guy? Well, he's a former CIA officer, John Seifer. 
he claimed in a stunning Twitter thread, you can go find it, John Cipher, S-I-P-H-E-R. If it's still up, maybe Twitter's pulled it down. But he, he claimed in that tweet thread that he took particular joy in discrediting the Hunter Biden laptop from hell narrative, and he enthusiastically admitted to shifting the election away from Trump. He was among a bunch of intelligence experts who all falsely claimed the Hunter Biden laptop story that was published in the New York Post back in October of 2020, right before the election, was part of a Russian disinformation campaign. A March 18th report from the New York Post mentioned how Cypher was among those officials, remember signed that letter saying that the laptop has the earmarks of a Russian information operation. 51 purported intelligence experts signed that letter. They didn't have any evidence to back up their assertion at the time. They were just operating off a convenient hunch that happened to be who the Biden campaign just before the election. The letter they all signed was published October 19th, just five days before the New York Post dropped the bombshell story of the laptop That has, by the way, since been validated by a bunch of different outlets, and that even includes now the New York Times. It was a a massive cover-up, folks, and attempts to discredit a valid report by clamoring about Russia during an election year has some consequences. March 27th, Grinnell shared a screenshot of Cypher's Twitter account writing, LOL, he signed the letter saying Hunter's laptop was Russian disinformation. John Cypher did. His response, it seemed smug, as he replied to Grinnell, who was the DNI, Director of National Intelligence at the time, stating that he bears a sense of pride that his own breed of disinformation resulted in impacting the election in the favor of Joe Biden. I take special pride in personally swinging the election away from Trump. You're welcome. Maybe cowardly Dick forgot he blocked me for the last several years and only unblocked me to give me credit for swinging the election. Of course, after he boasted about how he relishes the impact caused by his and other false assertions in that election cycle, regarding the Hunter Biden laptop story especially, he shared another post on Twitter trying to clean up his prior post. Just to be clear, this is the second tweet. Disingenuine Dick and his cronies are spinning this story by pretending the letter said something it didn't say. Didn't say the laptop wasn't Biden's, but that Russia and the right wing were exploring and amplifying the story for disinformation purposes. There was some irony there. Why did he start it by saying, just to be clear? And then he went on to deliver the most nonsensical art of the spin. Cypher is claiming that he and others didn't claim the laptop wasn't Biden's, but merely that the story was shared for disinformation purposes. That makes no sense 
considering the October 2020 report from the New York Post was about the Hunter Biden laptop and the contents and communications that were discovered on it. The laptop was the story to call the exploring and amplifying of the report disinformation is to literally call the laptop itself a piece of disinformation. All of this was just nothing more than a part of this. It had to be trumped up. No pun intended using the word Trump. It had to be coordinated. I mean, heavily coordinated and planned. Who was involved in all that? Was there a master? Was there somebody that was the architect that is the one that implemented that entire thing? If you, if you go back four years before that, we saw the same kind of thing happen just before the election in 2016. Our politics and our political system have got way, way out of control. I mean, there, there are just so many little things like this. Hiding this. Telling lies purposely giving us infactual information to cause us to think something some other way when the truth is right there in front of us and they just want to argue against the truth for whatever the political narrative is they're trying to sell to us. And in the middle of all of this, there's Joe Biden everywhere. I got to be honest with you. I wish for the rest of his term, he'd just go stay in his house in Delaware and every once in a while do a meeting, a public uh, press briefing or whatever from the basement. You know, they have it made up to look kind of like the Oval Office. I wish he would do that because he keeps getting us deeper and deeper in more trouble, and he really, on an international stage, is making the, the President of the United States, the most successful country on, on Earth, making us look really weak because we have a leader that is beyond weak. He is cognitively disabled. And every day it seems like something comes up that makes him look worse. Last year, you'll remember, during his trip to Europe, he said that sanctions were never meant to deter Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. Of course, that's absolutely false. Biden and multiple of his senior members in his administration They all complained repeatedly that sanctions were meant to deter Putin from going into Ukraine. On Thursday last week, he was in Brussels, Belgium. Biden said, I did not say that. In fact, the sanctions would deter him. Sanctions never deter, he added. But as far back as January 19th, Biden was explaining how the threat of sanctions would deter Putin. A reporter asked Biden at a press conference that day, given how ineffective sanctions have been in deterring Putin in the past, why should the threat of new sanctions give him pause? Biden responded, well, because he's never seen sanctions like the ones I promised will be imposed if he moves. Then January 23rd, here comes Antony Blinken, Secretary of State on CBS News, Face the Nation. He said this, as to the sanctions... The most important thing we can do is to use them as a deterrent, as a means of dissuading Russia from engaging in further aggression. Once sanctions are triggered, you lose the deterrent effect. January 25th, the White House held a background briefing about sanctions, 
titled Russia-Ukraine Economic Deterrence Measures. February 3rd, State Department Press Secretary Ned Price said sanctions were part of the measures to deter what could be additional Russian aggression. And it goes on and on. Joseph Borrell, a high representative of the European Union for Foreign Affairs, he said the same things. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told reporters the president believes sanctions are intended to deter, 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 deter. (laughs) And yet, no, I never said that. I never said anything about sanctions would deter. We all know sanctions never deter anything. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Back in a minute. What are you doing? Should we pick him up? He has Bud Light. He has an axe. But he has Bud Light. And an axe. I'm sure there's a reason for it. Hey, buddy. What's with the axe? It's a bottle opener. Hop in. Refreshingly smooth Bud Light. Always worth it. Look, here's Bud Light. And a chainsaw. People think unusual circumstances means complicated taxes. But for a TurboTax Live expert like me, it just makes things interesting. So, give us everything you've got. What if I'm a professional gamer with a ton of expenses? If they help drive views, let's talk deductions. What if I'm in a state with no income tax, but my survival videos are viewed in 38 countries? I can help. And if this is a business dinner, save those jerky receipts. An interesting life can mean an even greater refund. You do your thing. We've got your taxes. Intuit TurboTax Live. Introducing the all-new Infiniti QX60. Take on life in style. Taking the time to speak the truth, no matter the cost. Dan Newman, TNN, The Truth News Network. Hey there, I was trying during the break to uh, upload another version of Biden not admitting that he said something and uh, he really did. And I'm going to do this. I've never done this before live on the air. I want you to pause with me for a second because I'm about to go dig this thing out. It happened yesterday and it is probably the biggest deal in this presidency where somebody confronted Joe Biden for lying and did it in a very gracious and kind way, which is very unusual for reporters these days. And I'm sure you'll agree that that's a fact. So I just found this. Now let me get it loaded in the right spot. Uh, Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nah, it's going. Let me stop it. I got got to get this. I got to get this to you. Um, I don't think very many people heard it just because of the context that that it was in. 
So I'm going to, here it is. I found it. Now I'm loading it. You probably don't know what that means, but I'm putting it out here so that you can listen to it. This is Peter Ducey in the White House yesterday. And remember, Ducey's been all over the world with Joe Biden, including the uh, recent trips where he went to Brussels, Belgium, and he went to Poland. So here's Ducey pressing Biden on his walked back comments. Those that we've heard, all of us have heard the last few days. Thank you. Thank you very much. I know you're going to ask a really nice question. Well, it's it's an important question, no, I think. Are you worried that other leaders in the world are going to start to doubt that America is back if some of these big things that you say on the world stage keep getting walked back? What's getting walked back? It made it sound like, just in the last couple days, uh, it sounded like you told U.S. troops they were going to Ukraine. It sounded like you said it was possible the U.S. would use a chemical weapon, and it sounded like you were calling for regime change in Russia, and we know... None of the three occurred. None of the three occurred? None of the three. Mr. President? You you, you interpret the language that way. I was talking to the troops. We were talking about helping train the troops in that are the, the Ukrainian troops that are in Poland. That's what the context. I sat there with those guys for a couple hours. That's what we talked about. So when you said you're going to see when you're there, you were not intending to I was say referring to with meeting with and talking with the uh, Ukrainian troops that were in Poland. And when you said a chemical weapon use by Russia would trigger a response in kind. It will trigger a significant response. What does that mean? I'm not going to tell you. Why would I tell you? You've got to be silly. The world wants to know. The world wants to know a lot of things. I'm not telling them what the response would be. Then, then Russia knows the response. Hey, Sean Hannity here. Hey, click here to subscribe to Fox News YouTube page and catch our hottest interviews and yeah, most compelling yeah, analysis. Yeah, yeah. You will not get it anywhere else. So the reason you heard the disclaimer there by Sean Hannity at the end is because I edited that whole thing live on the air. But you get the gist of what that was all about. Folks, Joe Biden has a historic history where he misrepresents facts and then he doubles down, triples down on stupid. He forgets that we have access to all of these things that he says. And yet when he's confronted with them again and again and again, he denies any liability for lying and pretty much anything else. It's amazing. We have a war going on right now in the world. We're not directly involved in it yet, but who knows? Who knows what's going to happen down the road? There's much more going on than we know. We do know that talks have resumed this morning in Turkey, face-to-face peace talks, as negotiators from Russia and Ukraine not the leaders. Putin's not there. Zelensky's not there. But people are in the Turkish capital of Istanbul. They're trying to find common ground that would put an end to the war. Turkish President Erdogan welcomed delegates, saying stopping this tragedy is up to them. NATO member Turkey. They share a maritime border, remember, with Ukraine on the Black Sea and Russia. Turkey has good ties with both countries. 
They've tried to mediate the conflict through the last couple of weeks. Turkey mediated talks several weeks ago between the foreign ministers on both sides, and it led to no progress on a ceasefire. You know, I think, just to be honest with you, and uh, we didn't do much on Ukraine today because nothing other than the horrors continue. These peace talks are there. Just wanted to let you know about that. It all boils down to this. Is Vladimir Putin willing to somehow be given a, a very conventional diplomatic way to get out of this thing, to try to same face, or is he so committed to destroy everything about Ukraine, continue down the path that he's on now, and even contemplate going into the Baltic nations over there and the other nations in Europe to continue dominating and taking over countries, it's got to be one or the other. And folks, I just don't think Russia has the money. I don't think Vladimir Putin has the money to continue to fund what he's doing now in Ukraine. And I think he's looking for a peaceful way out. Conversations were being had yesterday. I don't know at what level but some of it leaked out that they were talking about possibly splitting Ukraine top and bottom, kind of like North and South Korea. That's the model that's even being discussed. With the northern half of the country staying as Ukraine and the southern half becoming part of Russia. I don't know if that is ever going to develop. I don't know if it'll happen, but I do know that is being mentioned in conversations. If you read our homepage story this morning, it's it's kind of a retrospective look back at our pandemic and COVID-19. Let me just say this, folks. We, we talk very little about it because we are definitely on the downside of COVID-19 as a pandemic. But we're learning more and more that there is a bunch of stuff out there that a lot of people have known about that have been hidden from us that are really bad things regarding COVID-19, our vaccines, the way our nation and the world handled this. It could have been far, far better than it was all the way through. It didn't have to get to the extremes that we went through. And of course, I think pretty much now the majority of the nation understand that the reason it did was for political purposes to try to take control of the American people, to keep us scared, to make us reliant totally on our government, and that they, regardless of what the Constitution and the laws in the individual states say, those leaders, yeah, the ones in Washington, also state by state, principally governors, they found out just how far they could push the American people, how much of our liberties we're willing to give up. But folks, Fauci's, he's back out there now. Over the weekend, he said that we as Americans, we need to be flexible enough to pivot. Pivot, how so? Back to a world with restrictions in place, more rigid restrictions specifically because of coronavirus again. Let me ask you this. You know as much about Fauci as I do. You know where he's been away. He's been hiding. 
He's under siege because more and more of his lies have been revealed. We found out, many of us thought it in the beginning, including his, uh, his working partner from back in the 90s, Dr. Judy Mikovits, on this show way back more than a year ago, told us what a fraud Anthony Fauci is, and she gave us a step-by-step of what he was going to do in this pandemic. He was going to create it, her words. He was going to create this to be a pandemic and was going to use it to lock down American people, keep us scared to death, and the government would seize more and more power from the American people. And so what he's doing now, he's making media appearances to warn us that while trends seem to be going in the right direction regarding COVID, we all need to be prepared to bring back coronavirus-era restrictions if public health officials deem it necessary. Not if we get sick, we got to make decisions on our own, but those restrictions will come back if public health officials deem those necessary. Once again, building up the necessity for political power over us. Biden's medical advisor made the same remark during an appearance on BBC's Sunday morning program as well, warning that people got to be prepared for a more rigid type of restriction. But he said he didn't want to use lockdown. Here's what he said. Quote, I don't want to use the word lockdown, as that has a charged element to it, but I believe that we got to keep our eye on the pattern of what we're seeing with infections right now. He said, we need to be prepared for the possibility that we would have another variant that would come along and then things change. And if we get a variant that does give us an uptick in cases and hospitalizations, we should be prepared and flexible enough to pivot towards going back, at least temporarily, to a more rigid type of restrictions such as requiring masks indoors. You can go ahead and continue to tiptoe towards normality, which is what we're doing, but at the same time, be aware that you may have to reverse. What is this all about? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go into my role of conspiracy theorist. <laughs> I know a lot of people like it when I do that because usually when it comes out, it's something that makes sense. Novel idea. We do something that makes sense, right? I think there is something coming that Fauci knows is coming. I think this is maybe, if nothing else, if nothing more, a last-ditch effort for Fauci to try to gain some credibility, to get a little bit of credibility back that we all know he has just flat lost. He doesn't have it anymore, but I think he doesn't understand that. I think he doesn't know that we really get him now and that we're not going to go back to those things. We're not going to allow him or any other expert come in here and scare us into doing the lockdown stuff anymore. Our leaders are the ones that gave us all the lockdowns and then they thumb their noses at it. I mean, across the board, we could name names we have here. Nancy Pelosi, remember her famous hair salon trip during the lockdowns? And then 
Governor Gavin Newsom over and over and over again thumbing his noses at his own lockdown orders in California. Other governors, people in the Congress did the same thing. Mayors. It just goes to show there is a a wide, wide, long and very stealthy move among leadership and politics in the nation to take as much control as they can over us and normalize it in political operations. That's the scary part. We've seen it happen in countries for generations, for decades, for centuries, where there are despots that lead the countries. What are the people going to do if they're going to live? they got to find ways to reconcile, to find ways to live within those normals. And when you do that, you just start taking things for granted instead of trying to push through and get things better. Story at a, the homepage of truthnewsnet.org today. It talks about the issues. It gives examples, specific examples of what COVID-19 and COVID-19 vaccinations have done to a bunch of people. Just a few examples. Like heart abnormalities were detected in some adolescents months after COVID-19 vaccinations. This one popped up at Seattle Children's Hospital. They looked at cases of patients that are younger than 18 who went in with chest pain and elevated serum troponin levels. We're talking about 18, 18, patients younger than 18. Elevated serum troponin levels and chest pain. Those are both signs of heart inflammation. And this happened to a bunch of these teens within a week of getting a second dose of Pfizer's vaccine. 35 patients fit the criteria. Of those, 19 were excluded for a bunch of different reasons, including getting care in another state after the initial visit. Cardiac imaging of the remaining 16. Performed three to eight months after they were first examined. 11 of 16 had persistent late heart enlargement enhancement, a heart abnormality, though at lower levels than they were months earlier. The follow-up imaging also revealed abnormal global longitudinal strain. That's a measure of heart function in three-quarters of the patients with little change from the initial exams as well as significantly improved measures of blood pumping, no detected regional wall motion issues, another abnormality. In other words, some of these kids got better. But folks, when you're looking at kids, and I'm, I'm saying people 18 and under are kids, you're looking at them, they're not supposed to have these things. They're not supposed to have these heart abnormalities. And they're certainly not supposed to have them when they're that age. There's been an entire horror that has been foisted on the American people by the United States political and medical bureaucracy combined. There are a lot of reasons we can just conclude for them doing this, but nevertheless, it happened, folks. It's still happening today. 
I'm not an anti-vax guy. Our kids had all their vaccinations. You know, we did the um, flu vaccine for years. I quit doing it years ago. I didn't believe in it. I'm thankful that I've quit it. But this whole thing, this whole process is exactly opposite of what we've been told for generations is the process for vaccinating people. It's just not right. Folks, that's a wrap on the show today. Thank you for being here. I want you to keep in mind Alex Bryant. Help him out. AlexBryantForCongress.com. Give him a donation. He's a good guy. He's going to represent the 7th District of Missouri well if he gets elected. And just because he's in Congress doing work up there, he'll help us. We'll be back tomorrow morning, 7 to 11. (laughs) 9 to 11. (laughs) Scared you there for a second. You guys have a great day. Remember, no matter who you are, no matter what your obstacles are, the issues, the problems you're going through, the worries and concerns you have, if you look up, that means look to God. The best is yet to come. Bye-bye. You feel bad, but not bad enough. You know you had it coming because you played so rough. Back over your shoulder, you got an icy chill. And you thought you'd get away with it, but now you know you never Yeah.